What makes people perform at their peak? Can organizations in this digital age really leverage what's happening in our messy brains to get better performance? Today on IMI's Talking Leadership podcast, I'm joined by Frédéric Fabricius, a pioneer in the field of neuroleadership and co-author of the book, The Leading Brain, which employs cutting edge neuroscience to help leaders improve performance, enhance creativity, and increase job satisfaction. And that's what we're going to talk about today, how leaders can examine what's happening in their minds to achieve peak performance for themselves and their organizations. So Frederica, welcome to IMI and thanks for being on the show. Hello, thanks for having me. I want to fit, start with actually taking a little bit of a step back and looking at the area of neuroscience in general. It's an area I've been reading more and more when it comes to leadership theory, even though it's been established for decades. Why has it come to the fore so much recently? I think because people are tired of um, getting advice that is not grounded in science. Mm. You know, anybody could become a coach if you think about it. You, you know, I don't know anything about your background, but literally anyone could go a one-day coaching certification and then claim to be a coach. And yeah. I think companies and uh, executives they have a certain quality standard and they want to get the best advice they can get. And I think if it's based in science, then you're at least not messing up. You know, I could I could still do a bad job, but then at least it's science-based. Yeah. <laughs> and and is, is the environment driving it as well? The fact that it's so complex that we're actually looking for more nuanced and, as you say, scientific-based answers to that complexity. Of course, of course. There's lots of new developments. And I also think, you know, neuroscience has been very useful to many people at this moment. So they recognize that it's been helpful and then they are looking for more of that, right? Yeah. It gives you a different understanding of how people really react, of how people really behave and why people behave the way they do. For me, it has always been the way that people listen more to what I have to say if I can explain why I think mm. they should do certain things. I think many uh, executives have a background in science, they have PhDs, mm. they have an engineering background or some kind of tech background, and they don't just want to have somebody come in and tell them do this, do that, they want to understand why. And I think neuroscience can give them that why. And and you've sort of focused in on sort of neuroleadership, how neuroscience can, can help leaders today. Central to your thinking is the, the fun, fear and focus concept. Can you give me a sort of eagle eye overview of this? Sure, sure. With fun, fear and focus, what happens is that research has shown that there are certain neurochemicals that can enhance our brain function. Okay, and there are certain neurotransmitters that are released when we perform at our best. And three things tend to elicit these neurotransmitters. So the first thing is fun. Mm -hmm. So when people are having fun at work, their brain releases a substance called dopamine. Mm. And dopamine makes your brain perform so much better. It's a brain booster. Usually people would say, you know, why should my employees have fun at work? I pay them to work, right? <laughs> or, or they think of installing after work parties and, and giving them free food and yeah. all kinds of little bonus things. But I think it's more about being in a job that you truly love 
It's yeah. about the fact that you have to be talented in what you do, that you should love what you do, that you should have a passion for your job. So it's not about, you know, getting extra big payments and, and a cool, nice office space. It's more about do you love what you do? Do you have an environment where you enjoy yourself? And then your brain releases dopamine and dopamine makes your brain perform much better. When it comes to fear, I'm not thinking about having a bad boss that, that stresses you or yeah. having a negative work environment. What I mean by this is that in order to perform at your best, you should not um, have a challenge that meets your standards and your skill sets, but you should exceed the challenge. So you should be slightly over challenged in order to perform mm. at your best. If you look at artists or athletes, they always challenge themselves. You know, an artist will not play the same songs every single day. They will not perform the same pieces in their concerts every evening, but they mix yeah. it up. And, and, and even executives, they should first find a job they love, and then they need to challenge themselves by getting the job rotations, maybe a promotion, maybe expanding into new markets, developing new products. And then your brain responds by eliciting a substance called noradrenaline, which makes mm -hmm. your brain also perform much better. Yeah. And the third ingredient is a bit something that is more and more missing in the business world because if you think about it, think of an athlete again. I know in Ireland you like rugby. Imagine <laughs> a rugby player on the field and then suddenly he's checking his phone and he's yeah. answering in the middle of the game. I mean, fans would go crazy, I imagine. W wouldn't be too happy about it, especially since yes. we got beaten recently, so we really wouldn't be happy about it. Yes, you would be happy about it. And you know, in the business world, people behave like this all the time. It's the standard. People are distracted. People sit mm. in open office spaces. People have open door policies. People tend to multitask. And we know that when people multitask, they make 50% more mistakes. They take 50% longer to complete the task, which are huge numbers, right, in terms of productivity loss. and. When the brain is able to fully focus in the here and now, it releases a substance called acetylcholine, and yeah. acetylcholine makes your brain work better. So in order to perform at your best and to be five times as productive, you need the fun, the fear, and the focus. Fantastic summary there. Uh, you mentioned five times more productive. Is there strong evidence for that? Is, it, is that a sustainable thing or is that in bursts? That, that was a McKinsey study that found that, you know, people are five times as productive when they're in an enhanced flow state. This is not something you can be in all day long. Okay, yeah. the goal is not to eight hours a day be in a flow state and to be hyper pro productive. I think the key is to identify your core areas, your biggest strategic challenges, your most important tasks where you have the most the biggest impact mm -hmm. and to then put yourself into a fun, fear and focus state for these specific situations. Well, if we can become five times more, more productive, even temporarily, this is definitely a, a good conversation to have. Um, I'd like to, to delve into phone a little bit more. You sort of talked about it's not, you know, the fun of going on a fairground ride. Um, you also mentioned um, those sort of, we call them wellness programs, you know, the, the karaoke Fridays and the, the ping pong mm -hmm. tables. 
What's what is the effect of stimulating that dopamine response in an employee, but not actually linking it directly to their work? You know what happens? I had a conversation with, um, I won't say his name, but it's, yeah. a, it's a founder of one of the big um, tech unicorns. And he said, you know, we have a problem. Everybody knows that we have these amazing offices and we offer sports and uh, people love working here. But the people who send us their resumes, they are interested in the fun, but not so much in the work. So we yeah. are actually not giving these interviews anymore where we tell them about all, all great benefits because it attracts the wrong kind of people. You get a burst of dopamine, so that's good, but you might lose you might lose what's really important in your work. I think the best work environment is where people love to work regardless of the environment. Think about, um, for example, volunteers in yeah. third world countries. They don't have a beautiful office. They are surrounded by war. They are surrounded by people being very sick, very desperate. They have no running water. I mean, it's awful conditions, but many of them are very high performing, very motivated, very engaged, and they don't even get paid well because they're intrinsically motivated. Yeah, and is that, and I've read this in, in your articles as well, is that the purpose that they have? So they feel that they are actually working towards a higher purpose. What yes. role does purpose have in, in that fun aspect? Oh, it's crucial. It's crucial. People want to know why they do something, right? That's also one of the reasons why entrepreneurs are so much more engaged in their work because they choose to do what they do. They have a higher autonomy. People don't like to do meaningless tasks that some boss has given them that will maybe end up in the trash. Mm. You want to know why you're doing something. Though at the same time, you know, this is maybe a bit of a digression here, but I have noticed that many companies are now trying to create a value proposition, you know, like a purpose. They say we're, you know, some of them do that very well because when it's authentic, that gives people a larger frame. It gives people an yeah. understanding. But I think it's more important for productivity that the individual finds purpose in its task. Let's say I work for a company that says we want to create a better working world which yeah. is good, but then let's say I'm an accountant and I just sit in the office and I calculate the numbers, then I should find purpose in the activity. It shouldn't be like this, oh, I spend eight hours a day doing this boring job, but luckily my company has purpose. It should be, oh, I just love numbers. I love doing these spreadsheets. This really is meaningful to me and it makes my life better. And then and it has an impact on an individual level. And, and how can an organization do that? Whenever I hear purpose, I always go, there was a story of John F. Kennedy. He was visiting NASA and he met one of the cleaners and the clean, and he asked what the cleaner did. And the cleaner said, I helped put men on the moon. <laughs> how, how does, from the top down, how do you get that sort of sense of purpose, as you say, to the accountant, to the to very transferable skills and to, to other companies? How do you get that from the top down as a leader how can you engender that within your organization? Well, what I would do, I think hiring trumps training. So mm -hmm. I think if you have a very good hiring process and you make sure that the people who apply for a position are intrinsically motivated by their task, 
Mm. then you are already 80% there. I think it's hard to install some kind of external purpose into somebody who doesn't care about their job, mm. right? So I think it's better to only hire people who already are very motivated, who you don't have to motivate it. I think it's, it's almost impossible to motivate people who don't feel motivated. I, I, will ask I, you the, who, yeah. I will ask you the hard question there. How can you tell that in an interview? Because uh, we, we've all seen those people that interview very well. <laughs> and then six months later, <clears throat> they don't do the job so well. So what are those techniques? Is there any tips you can give? I'm not an expert on recruiting, but I would look at that track record from the past, from the way mm. they have um, done in their previous jobs, because I think it's a trait that's rather, rather persistent. I think people yeah. who are eager to perform, people who are curious, who have a thirst for life, they show that also in other areas of their lives, right? So I think it's very unlikely that somebody says, right now I'm very unmotivated in my job, I hate it, I do nothing, but at your <laughs> company I will do a great job. Yeah, yeah. So you, you, do, uh, you do just have to look for clues as much as anything else. Yeah, I think so. And, and then one thing, of course, that you can do is by stressing out people during an interview. I'm not saying it's ethical, okay? Yeah. But if you do these kind of assessment centers where people go through a lot of stress, um, you will see what's in their brains, what's in the deeper area of their brains, like for example, the basal ganglia, which is where your mindset is stored, your experience is stored, um, where your habits are stored. So if you stress people, their prefrontal cortex for rush, rational thinking does not work properly anymore. And they show a bit more of their, let's say their real true self. Yeah. So I'm not saying, I'm not necessarily recommending that you should stress people during <laughs> um, an interview, but I do think it makes sense to see people under high stress situations to see how they react, because then you will see if somebody is still polite under these circumstances, or if that was just a show, you know, for the interviewer, or if somebody is still, you know, I, I'm not saying that stress resistant per se is necessary, but I'm saying that during stress, people can't compensate with their prefrontal cortex anymore. And then you see the education, you see the way they're upbringing, you see what values are important to them, you see which habits they have, because if you think like professions like um, firefighters or you know the military, mm. they do a lot of overtraining so that in emergency situations, when their prefrontal cortex is not working anymore because they are so stressed, mm. they can rely on the training they have received. And the same way you can test something like this in a recruitment situation. Well, you mentioned firefighters, so I think it might be a good time to move on to fear a little bit more detail now. What's the difference in your brain in terms of a rock threatening to land in your head and, you know, the critical email that lands in your inbox? Is there actual different things happening in the brain or is that are we evolutionary hardwired to respond the same way? Such an interesting question. I think it's the same thing. And that's the problem because people think the rock is really a problem. Mm. And the email is not, when in reality, if you look back to the hunting and gathering societies where people lived in small communities of maybe 250 people, you would survive because you had good relationships to the people around you. 
If somebody mm. excluded you from that society, if you were on your own, you would die very soon. You needed your friends, your families, your companions to support you um, when fighting against um, other tribes or when hunting together. You would need to trust each other and to rely on each other. And this social component to survival is deeply wired into our brains. So this critical email is seen as a threat to our lives. That's why people react so strongly to it. It elicits mm. a you know, a fight or flight or freeze response in our brain. When in reality, people say, you know, it was just an email. What is your, they don't understand what's happening yeah. in people's brains. And that's why it's so, um, that's why people don't always adequately correspond to this because they say, oh, what's the big deal? It's just an email. But in our brains, a threat in our social relationships is a threat to our survival. It's really interesting. And, and you talked a, a little bit there about sort of challenge stress, um, putting employer employees rather under just the right amount of fear so that they'll stretch themselves. Uh, is this a useful thing to do? And what are the dangers here? What would be your advice uh, for, again, for those senior leaders looking to, to implement this sort of philosophy? One thing you have to understand is that one person's meat is another person's poison. Yeah. So very many executives who are at the very top are what we call sensation seekers mm -hmm. they have a very active dopamine system in the brain so they excel in situations of stress of challenge let's say they're flying between los angeles and japan you know they are rock climbing in the weekends think of somebody like richard branson who has founded 500 companies during his lifetime these people love a good challenge and they are quite stress resistant while other people perform at their best under very different circumstances hmm. okay and they are not less intelligent or less high performing they're just as smart think of people like pulitzer prize winning authors or nobel prize winning scientists they excel in a more quiet and more stable environment they have mm -hmm. more detailed focus so when you create the right work environment for the people around you you should not create the kind of environment that you love but you yeah. should create the kind of environment that they will love right and then you have to understand that people for some people high stress environment environments are great and for other people, that really destroys performance. So you have to be a good observer. I think you have to talk to the people around you. You have to be sensitive to these individual differences. Because in a diverse team, you will have some people who are sensation seekers. And you will have people who are not. And it's not that the sensation seekers are the performers and the others are not. So that's very often the problem that people hire people who are similar to themselves and then yeah. they create a work environment which works for them. In reality, what you should do is hire a diverse set of people, even people who are not like you, but who have a complementary skill set and a complementary work style. Right. It, it very much fits into the sort of modern theory of leadership, which is about empathy and, you know, that, that sort of ability to observe others, as you say. Yes. Yes, you need to be a good observer, you need to be a good listener, you need to be open-minded rather than just thinking of one kind of performer in your organization. We talked a little bit there about sort of challenge stress and, and conflict within a work environment. I was fascinated by reading about the, the magic ratio that was developed by John Gottman. 
when looking at conflicts mm -hmm. and particularly modern conflicts in our seemingly safe environments. Can you explain this to our listeners? Oh, this is so interesting. You know, John Gottman, he could predict if a couple would divorce within the next day, uh, not the next day, <laughs> but um, in the future. And I think, uh, don't pin me down on the numbers, but I think it was roughly 90% accuracy. Yeah, and I think it was. Mm -hmm. It was very high numbers. And how did he do this? He measured people's physiological uh, metrics, such as skin conductance, resistance, and uh, heart rate. And then he put, and he also observed people, and he put them into a high stress situation. So he looked at couples and he gave them a controversial topic and he observed them while they were fighting. Mm -hmm. And what he found was that you need in a fight at least a five to one ratio of positive versus negative interaction in order for the couple to survive long term and what most people don't know is that it's even 20 to one in everyday life wow. most people remember this five to one ratio and they say you need five times more positive interaction than negative interaction for a relationship to work out but yeah. in reality if you don't have a conflict it's 20 to 1. Wow. Which is uh, huge. So we're talking about the sort of boss and employee really relationship yeah. there. Think about it. So you should, in theory, for every criticism, <laughs> give 20 positive remarks in order to get a sustainable ratio, right? Yeah. Between praise and criticism. That's a tough one if you don't like your employee. <laughs> <laughs> or, or if they're doing a bad job. Yes, yes. yes. And, and how does that work? Because we've all heard those stories of the tough bosses and the massive boost, uh, you know, when they, they finally do say to you, good job. And it, it does seem to, there's many sports figures here that loyalty becomes, like, these are the people they'll run through brick walls for. Yes. How does that match up? Well, you know, with positive things, somebody said it's like Teflon for the brain. Yeah. We have a built-in negativity bias. So the brain processes negative things roughly nine times more strongly, stronger than um, positive things. Okay. Mm. So we have a built-in bias. We, but what also happens is that for positive information, we activate the reward circuit in the brain which is the same circuit that is activated when we take drugs. Mm -hmm. So people get addicted to good things. If you're one of these very nice bosses who always compliment people and you're always nice and you give high bonuses, people get used to that. That becomes their new standard. Okay. And they expect more and more and more. That's why when people receive their bonus payments, very often they're not very happy about it. They compare to their peers' bonuses, they compare to last year's bonuses. Instead of taking the free money and, and being happy about it, they complain in many organizations because yeah. it's not enough. You know, that's because we get used to good stuff. So if you're a very nice person, people get used to that and they take it for granted. While if your baseline is that your boss is a bit tough, then you get a real boost of dopamine when she's or he's finally nice. And even more so, there's another, I hope I don't confuse you, but there's another mechanism in the brain that we, 
bond more strongly to unexpected rewards. Yeah. So if you think about it, we can now both look forward to Christmas and think about, you know, how happy we will be on, on Christmas Eve and uh, receiving our presents. Or we can come home tonight and then there's a huge bunch of roses or chocolate or some crazy gift we have yeah. received from our spouse. And then we go like, wow, oh my God, that's amazing because it's unexpected. So in the, in the in the work environment, just let's uh, focus in on the bonuses there. Would it be more effective next year if a CEO was saying, "Okay, we'll raise the bonuses by five percent, but rather raise them in that they just send the five percent separately as a surprise"? Would that be more effective? <laughs> Maybe. What I would recommend would be to, for example. Do the normal bonus thing that you mm. do in your company, okay? Because that's what people expect. And if you don't do it, they also get upset. So it's yeah. hard to get out of that trap. Once you started it, you have to continue it. But mm. then I would think about um, more personalized, spontaneous, surprising bonuses to your people. This doesn't have to be money. I know one CEO, for example, he had a guy in his um, PMO office who'd done it outstanding job and then he just said one weekend to him you know next week or you know whenever you like just take a couple of days off and go with your family to your favorite hotel and we pay oh, that's true, yeah. and that was like you know it didn't even cost so much money but the person was truly happy and surprised on I, I could imagine as well the soil loyalty levels would would rise dramatically at that sort of gesture Yes, and it's also because you had put the personal touch into it. Mm. You know, you have really thought about something that this particular person would enjoy. So obviously it's difficult to do this systematically, um, but you can do it. If you have a team of, let's say, 20 direct reports or however you have, um, you know, then you can think of one small personalized surprise to prepare for this person this year. Yeah. Absolutely. And that is something people don't expect. Obviously, if you do this all the time, then they expect the surprises. So it's tricky. <laughs> yeah. Tough love, I think, is the summary of this one. Um, moving on from fear, let, let's talk about focus. Um, because it's really becoming a key skill or, or maybe characteristic of a successful leader today. What's the neuroscience behind focus in terms of, of a professional work environment? Well, what we know is that people focus less and less. Mm. So attention span has plummeted. People are distracted. People multitask. So there is a huge problem. And what we also know is, for example, people have more and more open office spaces where they disrupt each other. Mm. And you have to know that when you, let's say you're busy and focused on something, you're putting a paper together on some important topic and you're really immersed into that activity and then your colleagues comes in and, and asks you a question. Yeah. Which might be a very important question, but still you're interrupted, mm. right? And then at that moment, what happens is that you take 20 minutes to go back to your initial, initial state of focus. It takes a lot of time to go back. We think that we can switch between tasks so easily, but it's not working. And multitasking is not possible in our brain. Okay, yeah. we tend to think that we can multitask, but in reality, it's a myth. And I, I read somewhere 
Yeah. Sorry, to cut across you, I read somewhere that only 2% of the population are effective multitaskers. And at the same time, everybody thinks they are a part of these 2%, yeah. right? So people are disillusioned and research shows that the people who think they're great at multitasking tend to be the worst ones. <laughs> yes. That's very and interesting. So what do I recommend? I think that's the interesting question. The inter Well, on one side, I think it's important to understand that most multitasking happens because we are addicted to our smartphones and devices. Yeah. I know that lots of coaches and experts say, you know, do the meetings without your phone, um, turn off the email alerts on your, on your desktop. These yeah. things are great, but they still don't kill the underlying problem because you have to understand that every time you get a new email, every time you get a new phone call, your brain thinks, oh, surprise right let's get a burst of dopamine because this could be something new and unexpected and, and relevant to my survival so you get a dopamine burst and you get a burst of noradrenaline because you never know what's in the email you never know what will be in the message right you don't know who yeah. is it from what will it be and this puts our brain into a into a dopamine burst and just as we just talked about it, every time we get a dopamine burst, we activate the reward center in our brain. And this is also a center of our brain for addictions. People get actually addicted to their phones. Okay. Yeah. If you look at somebody um, in the brain scanner and they take a look at their phone, you will see that the brain lives up like in love or in an addiction. Mm. And even more so, this happens because our devices are a connection to other people. We are human, as humans, we are very social creatures. Mm -hmm. Our brains are extremely social and we handle social information with priority. So our phones have become our connections to the people that matter most to us in our lives, right? Our family, our co-workers, our bosses, our clients, and whatever information we can get from them could be really important because our brain processes social information with priority because it could be crucial to our survival the way we all brains are brought up. So people get addicted because it's unpredictable what your brain will, what your phone will present and people get addicted because it taps into the social system of our brain. So in order to focus better, I would recommend to increase the level of fun and fear at the workplace, which is not something people would usually recommend. People always focus on the devices and they say, you know, yeah. stay away yeah. from the devices, structure your work day so that you only check your emails once a day, or, which is all good if you manage, but if you're truly addicted, you listen to that advice and then you just continue as you did before. So if you want to get out of that addiction circle, what you need to do is to have more fun at work because yeah, then you will get a source of dopamine that is not linked to your phone. And you should have a good level of fear because then your brain is thinking you're doing something truly interesting and relevant. And then you get that burst of noradrenaline and then focus will follow automatically. I, I, I came across the fact that uh, babies uh, produce those quote-unquote focus chemicals naturally. Yes. Um, is that one of the reasons why they learn so quickly? Yes, that's one of the reasons why they learn so quickly. 
And, you know, there's research that states that the acetylcholine gateways are not as active anymore as we become adults. Mm. But at the same time, I also think that children learn so quickly because they have to learn. It's relevant to them, right? As adults, you can get by without learning anything new. Yeah. But children won't. They, you know, if you can't speak and if you don't understand what people around you are saying, you're not going to survive. So to them, learning is crucial for their survival, and that's why they learn. It's truly relevant on an emotional level. And even adults will learn when something is truly relevant. And if focus is a result of fun and fear sort of working in tangent with each other, are there ways leaders can then set up their organizations to be more focused, uh, maybe less narrowed, even slightly more than that? How can you get teams to focus better? Good question. First of all, I would give people more flexibility. I would not force people into open office spaces. Okay. So I would for sure recommend that if people want to focus and be alone, they should have that chance. Mm. I think there was a recent Harvard Business School study that showed that rather than increasing communication, open office spaces are decreasing communication because people start hiding from each other. They try to avoid each other. So I think one thing you need to make sure is that people can work without having their co-workers as a distraction. This means having a door you can close and the phone you can turn off and that you have the right to keep your door closed. I know lots of offices are installing open door policies so people can walk in on each other at any given moment. I think that's detrimental to performance. Yeah. Research shows that if you want um, to have more creativity or an, an innovation, you should give people more silence. You, you know the classical brainstorming technique where you yell out different ideas when you're in a group, you're sitting together, yeah. you have a flip chart, and then you know then you say, oh, I have an idea, and I have an idea, yeah, yeah. If you compare this to a setting where you isolate people and each and one of them writes down their ideas in isolation and in silence, and then mm-hmm. they meet and bring their ideas together, the individual session yields more results. I, I always found that personally myself, actually. It's, it's, it's hard in a, an environment to, it's almost like having to do stand-up. Yes. Um, it's, it's very stressful to actually get up. Yes. And, and it's even more so what happens is that your own thought processes are interrupted by the people around you. So I think you should allow people to work undisturbed. Having a team does not mean that you have to spend 24-7 together. Being in a team does not mean that you have to be physically sitting next to each other and have lunch together and have coffee breaks together and be inseparable. It just means that you work together. But I think you get the best results if each person can focus on her task rather than having to focus on the other people because people are a huge source of distraction in the workplace. I worked at an office where people were, um, let's put it this way, very friendly and very social. It was a great atmosphere, but whenever I wanted to get something done, I said I I work from home. Because (laughs) it took them half a day to greet each other. Every new person who came in the morning made the round and said, hello, how are you? Hugs and kisses. This took forever. 
and I wanted to get my stuff done. So, you know, I closed my door and, and, and this was really, people looked at me and they thought I was a bit antisocial, but <laughs> hey, sometimes you have to work, right? I would be very much the same. I'm a, I'm a closed door person. <laughs> Silence. Uh, there's a reason why noise cancelling headphones have, have risen in so much popularity recently. Um, th- this whole conversation is naturally sort of talk. I was I was actually about to ask you about a few tips, but I I think that that's a wrong way of going about this. It's quite messy and squishy concepts. I'd I'd imagine it's impossible for a company to get the balance between fun, fair, and focus 100% right all the time. For yes. a group of very disparate people, so so let's take the CEO's view on this. Uh, how do they know the right le- levers are being pulled in their organization, or maybe more importantly, when the wrong levels are being pulled? What are the red flags that can be spotted even to begin thinking about this problem? Well, first of all, I think you will see if you're really performing well. You see it in your numbers. Mm-hmm. So as long as your numbers are good, I think you're doing many things right. <laughs> that's a no-brainer I guess yeah. the red flags many companies are sending out these employee um, how do you call these these satisfaction surveys yeah. you can see a lot of things there obviously you have to respond to them and I think most of the cases it comes down to individuals who destroy work performance mm. what I have seen in most companies is that it all depends on your individual boss yeah okay so in some areas people are highly satisfied because they have a great boss and in some areas people are usually dissatisfied because they have a bad boss and rather than coaching this bad boss i would remove the bad boss i so think you, some people are just not meant to be in this position to yeah. guide the lives of other people if they have such a negative impact they have zero talent in that area and then i think as a ceo you should look at these things and you should think about whether you have the right people in the right positions so, so it can be, uh, I suppose, measured reasonably scientifically. Yes, yes. I think a combination of uh, numbers, so your EBITDA, your profitability, your sales data, combined with the employee satisfaction surveys, or you know, mm. things like the Gallup Q12, are highly effective. I think then you get a view of both. Um, finally, I came across. Uh, one of the terms uh, I always jump on these sort of terms, the team of the future. Um, firstly, what does that team of the future look like? And secondly, what difference would it make to performance levels if it's realized? The team of the future is about the fact that we are all different, mm. right? In order to have the best team performance, you need a rather diverse team. It's good to have different strengths and maybe not so good to have different weaknesses, but you should have people with different working styles, with different perspectives on life. And in order to achieve that, you need to have an understanding of each other's differences. And I think most personality differences can be explained by neurochemistry. Yeah. Not so much by anatomy and physical structures in the brain, but about the different little chemicals that jump around in our head and that influence our personality and our behavior. And I think it's important to understand that people reach their peak performance under different conditions mm. and to not make a one-size-fits-all approach to leadership. You need to allow for more flexibility with processes, with working styles, with 
office hours and all of these things. I, I saw one little, uh, uh, one of your headlines was Kant is wrong. Uh, that seemed to, to, to point towards a philosophy that you should take when dealing with others. As, as one of my favorite philosophers, I'm going to have, to have to ask you to explain yourself why he's wrong. <laughs> well, you know, the categorative imperative. I don't yeah. know, you know, he's German, so in German it's <laughs> Kategorische Imperative. Uh, uh, all the great philosophers are, Frederick. <laughs> At least the ones from the 18th century. Yeah. So what happened with Kant is that he said you should treat others as um, you would like to be treated. Yeah. Right, if you translate it roughly. And I think you should treat others as they would like to be treated. Mm. Everybody's different. Some people, from, you know, for me as an introvert, it's a nightmare to work in a crowded office with other people. Mm. I love being alone. Okay. <laughs> well, for a true extrovert, the worst thing you could do to them is to give them an um, office somewhere remote from others where mm. they are undisturbed. They love to be in the middle of everything, right? So for one person, being isolated is improving performance, and for the other person, it's decreasing performance and you need to truly understand what motivates people and give them what they need to perform at their best. Uh, really finally now and and to be parochial for a moment you're a central figure in the mastering the performance mindset program being run here at IMI uh, a 10-week developmental journey for senior leaders. Uh, what role first of all do you play in that program and how can participants expect to benefit from your piece and the, I suppose the program overall? Yes, it's a great program. So I look forward to being there again in, I think, in April. Mm. What happens is that I will present a bit how the brain works. So I will give people a very rough overview of the different networks in the brain that are relevant for reaching peak performance. And so I'm going to give them, you know, explain my fun, fear, and focus model. I'm mm. going to show them different brain areas they need to reach the greatest performance, such as the prefrontal cortex, the limbic system, the basal ganglia. And then we also have actually sent out, and we're going to send out um, science-based personality tests. So we're actually going to look at those individual differences in your chemistry. So everybody will get uh, personalized 22 pages customized report on their individual neurochemical disposition. I hope this doesn't scare people yeah, away. I, I look into your very soul. <laughs> so, but it's very good because it gives you deeper insight into why people behave the way they do. Yeah. You will gain greater self-awareness. We're going to discuss how you can use these personality differences in a team setting. So we're both speaking about performance on an individual level, but also in a team setting. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. I, I did actually talk to participants from the, from the last run and uh, it seemed to have some big impacts. Frederica, thanks so much. I have about five pages more questions, but I will let you go at this point. Uh, it was Thank really so fascinating. Much. And uh, yeah, we'll see you in April. Thank you so much, Hugh. I look forward to meeting you.